Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. And you can always find Let's Talk Micro on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pandora, TuneIn Radio, GoodPods. Whatever you listen to podcasts, you can find Let's Talk Micro. As for our social media, I am on Instagram as Let's Talk Micro, no apostrophe. On Twitter as Let's Talk Micro 1. On TikTok as Let's Talk Micro. YouTube channel Let's Talk Micro. And on LinkedIn as Luis Plaza. So please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. Download episodes and leave a review if the app allows you to do so. Definitely any feedback, any suggestions, like any topic suggestions, you can email those at letstalkmicro at outlook.com. But any feedback, any suggestions, they are always welcome and appreciated. And as always, if you haven't listened to the last episode of Let's Talk Micro, the previous one, please go ahead and do so. It was a great episode about ex extensively drug-resistant Shigella or XDR Shigella, And two experts from the CDC, they came to the podcast, Drs. Naima Logan and Luis Francois Watkins. And they joined the podcast and they talked about Shigella, what makes it extensively drug resistant, you know, what population is at risk. So overall, it was a great episode, very informative. And on the show notes, there are some resources that you can access and get more information about Shigella. So definitely check it out if you haven't already. And once again, shout out to the CDC because, you know, they have responded so quickly when I reach out for questions, uh, you know, when I reach out for a request with an episode, they, you know, responded very quickly and we got something on the books very fast. So thank you for that. And the audience thanks you as well. So today's episode is definitely in the ballpark of us medical laboratory scientists and microbiologists. You know, this episode is about Piperacillin tazobactam or TZP. And those of us that work in clinical micro, we are definitely familiar with it. We definitely do, right? We do susceptibility testing in some hospitals. If, you know, if this automated system terminates it, we go ahead and provide an e-test. We provide a Kirby Bauer. You know, it's a drug. It's an IV drug. And if you're patient, you know, it's an inpatient, you know, your policy in the hospital might be to make sure that we provide that susceptibility report on Pipteso. So this is a great episode. And in it, two guests, you know, joined the podcast, which are Dr. Romney Humphreys and Dr. April Abbott. Two microbiologists, very experienced, very involved in the field of micro, in clinical micro. You see their names on the CLSI. So they are very active in the community. So definitely, you know, I was very thankful that they had, the, you know, they took the time to join the Stock Micro and talked about a study that they did where Piperacillin Tazobactam was evaluated using automated instruments like your Vitec 2, your Phoenix, your Microscan. And the results were evaluated against a reference method, which is a, a broad micro dilution. And the results were compared. So it was a very interesting study. And in the podcast, you know, they talk about, they talk about TCP. They talked about the Merino trial, which is something that I learned about. I wasn't aware of it. So how, you know, they were in a trial where they tested, you know, uh, TCP and see how it performed, I guess, against a carbapenem. They were trying to test that it was better, but it ended up being worse. And then, you know, one thing that was detected was that Some of the automated systems were overcalling susceptibility. 
So it was being called susceptible where it was not. So definitely a great information in this episode. You know, they talk about how TCP is a, tr- as a tough drug to test. They discuss the study with the errors, how the instruments perform, the recommendations, and a great topic that maybe some of you might not be aware of, which is the clinical breakpoints. You know, what kind of breakpoints do the the automated instruments use, you know, which are the FDA breakpoints, and how do those compare to the CLSI breakpoints? So definitely great conversation, great episode, very informative. So let's go ahead and listen to it. So those of us that, you know, that we are medical lab scientists and we work in clinical micro, we're definitely familiar with purpose-selling tasobactam or TCP. And I found this, you know, this study, and I thought it would be to share it with the audience, you know, MLS and microbiologists. So the study, you know, is titled Evaluation of Pepersilin Tasobactam Testing Against Enterobacterialis by the Phoenix, Microscan, and Vitec 2 tests using updated clinical and laboratory standard institute breakpoints. This was published in the Journal of Clinical Microbiology in January of this year by the American Society for Microbiology. So with me today, I have two guests, Dr. Romney Humphreys and Dr. April Abbott. Doctors, welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you as well. My pleasure. So let's go ahead and just for the audience, can we start with a quick introduction? Um, sure. I'm Romney Humphreys. I'm the Division Director for Lab Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I'm also a clinical microbiologist, so when I get the chance to go into the lab, I'm super happy to see the plates and look at the bugs. Um, And I also do a lot of research on antimicrobial resistance and susceptibility testing. And I am Dr. April Abbott, and I work at Deaconess Hospital. Um, We're a health system in Indiana, Illinois, and Kentucky. Uh, There, I direct the micro lab in our molecular diagnostic section for infectious diseases, um, have spent the last few years doing mainly COVID-related stuff, but happy to get back into the clinical lab and sort of where my heart belongs with susceptibility testing. So I'm just really excited to kind of be here and talk about the study. Definitely, you know, isn't like great, you know, plate reading and it's just, it's it's wonderful, you know, what we do, it's, it's great. And I have seen your names in different publications, so I know you definitely are are very active. So, you know, once again, I appreciate the time that you're taking to talk about this. So let's go ahead and talk about the study. Can we do like an overview of it? Sure, Um, I can kick us off. So this was a study to take a look at what the lab experience might be if they were to update their test systems with the new CLSI breakpoints for piperacillin-tazobactam. Um, so we looked at the enterobacterialis, and so many people in the audience may be aware that CLSI updated the breakpoints for this drug um, about a year ago. Um, however, um, up until very recently, the US FDA has not recognized those breakpoints. And so if clinical labs want to adopt them, they have to do a validation study. Um, and we all kind of struggle with these in our labs. It can be really tough to get reference testing done. It can be really tough to kind of know how to evaluate the data. And so we thought it would be valuable to sort of talk about the experience that a bunch of labs had had using these different systems. Okay. Yeah. You know, it can be definitely challenging sometimes, you know, where to start, what to do. And so definitely a lot of variables here. So, you know, as I was reading the, you know, the article, you know, it talks about the Marino trial 
you know, just can you talk about what that is, you know, what that trial is? Yeah, I'll take that one. So the Merino trial is a randomized controlled trial that was done um, across multiple countries. Um, and it was led by David Patterson's group and Patrick Harrison was the first author. And so this group of investigators were really interested to see if the old sort of Uh, standard of going to a carbapenem um, for treatment of ESBL, um, E. coli, or Klebsiella was really true, or if from a stewardship perspective, you could just use Piperacil and Tazobactam. And that's kind of what they were hoping to find, that they could spare the carbapenems and use Piptazo. So they randomized patients across multiple countries who had bloodstream infections, so serious infections caused by E. coli or Klebsiella pneumoniae. And um, the enrollment criteria were isolates that were non-susceptible to ceftriaxone, so intermediate or resistant to ceftriaxone using current breakpoints. And so then uh, patients either got Piperacil and Tazobactam or they got uh, Meropenem and they compared the outcomes. The primary thing they were looking at was mortality. So sort of like the worst outcome would be that you are no longer alive at the end of your treatment course or at 30 days. And so as they were enrolling patients, what they found um, kind of before the, the trial even finished was that they were not able to show that Piperacil and Tazobactam was uh, non inferior to meropenem. It's kind of a funny way that they talk about it, but essentially it means piperacil and tazobactam wasn't as good as meropenem in the trial. And so they sort of went about hoping to prove one thing and they proved the exact opposite thing, which in science is sometimes kind of nice because, um, you know, probably your biases didn't play a huge role in that. Um, and so the challenge, though, from this trial, um, when they went back and did a lot of work trying to understand what had happened, because keep in mind, all these bugs were susceptible to Piperacil and Tazobactam. Um, but when they went back and reevaluated the data, what they found is that some of the commercial systems that the clinical labs were using, um, and some of them were also using distiffusion, were um, undercalling resistance to these bugs. And so they'd enrolled the patient in the study thinking that they had a susceptible isolate, but when they went back and tested it by reference methods, it was actually resistant. And so it kind of um, also sort of Roundabout proved another point, which is how important um, the AST results that we generate are to patient outcomes, right? So if we're making mistakes in our labs, that can have a real impact on the patient's um, outcome. And I think, you know, another thing that was kind of going on simultaneously around this time is there was really a lot of literature that was starting to come out about how we utilize um, dosing strategies in the hospital, and those may not be how the original dosing strategies for a particular agent were designed whenever it went through the FDA approval process. So an example here would be Piptazo, where, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of literature come out that shows if you're using sort of this um, dosing strategy where you're giving a single dose and then you're waiting some time period and giving another dose, that um, you're not probably going to achieve the PKPD targets that you would need to to overcome some of these higher MICs. And so a lot of hospitals have gone to sort of this continuous dosing strategy. And so although that's happening in the real world, it isn't necessarily something that's um, wildly or widely standardized. And so, so that kind of played a part in this too, where we look at um, are the MICs that you're getting with the dosing that you're probably going to use in these different clinical scenarios, do those two things go together well? So are you able to achieve those PKPD targets that you think you're going to to overcome that MIC to end up calling it susceptible? So I think all of these pieces of data 
kind of came together at the same time. Okay. And um, so, you know, as I was also reading, you know, and, and um, Dr. Humphrey, you talk about, you know, a little, you mentioned this diffusion, definitely a, a method that is widely used in, in the lab. So, I mean, almost everyone, you know, they use this diffusion and, you know, so it says, you know, that it's associated with high rates of minor errors. Can you talk more about this? Yeah. So when um, CLSI goes about resetting breakpoints, MIC breakpoints, we also have the chore of making sure that the disk diffusion correlates match those new breakpoints. And so um, this is getting trickier and trickier, I will say, because we're starting to move breakpoints closer and closer to where the wild type MICs are. And so when the majority of your bacterial population sits right at the breakpoint, there is not a lot of wiggle room for small testing, you know, inaccuracies to come into play. So even though we've, you know, done a lot of work to standardize our disk diffusions, we're all very good about using, you know, the 0.5 McFarland and setting them up in time and incubating the same time. There's still, you know, ranges for all of those things. And all of those, when they add up, could add some inaccuracies to the test. And so when we re-evaluated the Piptazo disk diffusion breakpoints, um, I think, well, first off, it's important to know we didn't have any really good contemporary data. So most of the data we used to set those breakpoints was from either when Piptazo first came to market, which was in like 1997, um, and um, a small study that was done in 2003 looking at ESVL producing isolates. So like the types of bugs that we see circulating um, these days weren't included in the evaluation just because we didn't have that data. Um, so when we did the best we could and set these breakpoints, um, it, it was imperfect, right? And so there were a pretty high number of minor errors. So overcalling um, resistance by the disc. And then we also saw some very major errors. It was so close to hitting acceptance criteria, but um, I think the very major error, it was like 2.4, 2.5 and two is what you want, right? So it was a little bit higher than what you would hope to see. So um, part of the problem with the disc is Again, it was designed way back when Piptazo first came to market when all the bugs were super duper susceptible. And so the disk mass is probably not quite right. So that um, 100 micrograms of Piperacillin and 10 micrograms of Tazobactam that's in that paper disk is probably not the optimal concentration to help you differentiate susceptible from resistant you, in contemporary isolates and then also using these current breakpoints. So um, CLSI is working with UCAS to see if we can come up with a better disc content. In Europe, they actually have a different Piptazo disc than we do. They have a 3020 disc, I think. No, sorry, 36 disc around that. <laughs> and um, so their, their disc, is, it is different. So they did go through this exercise, but they're still not super duper happy with it. So it's kind of an international challenge that we all face. So yeah, when you're doing disk diffusion, you can expect those results to maybe not quite correlate very well with your automated AST systems, or even with reference broth microdilution. Okay. Um, so, and then, so let's go ahead and talk about the, you know, the testing so, you know, it's in the article, so about, you know, like how many isolates, you know, and it mentions, you know, what methods, what instruments were used. Yeah, so I'll take this part. Um, so how this kind of came about, you know, we were having a discussion about how you would do your own uh, off-label validation in your laboratory, right? Because each one of us are really kind of facing the same sorts of struggles here 
when we have a CLSI uh, breakpoint change, uh, whereas our instrument is maybe using an FDA approved breakpoint or we need to update that breakpoint in the laboratory. So how this really was set up is for each site to collect their own contemporary isolates um, and really to try to get um, certain organisms that we would routinely see in the laboratory, do the testing at your own facility and then send that off to a laboratory, a single laboratory, which ended up being Vanderbilt, to then do the broth microdilution. So you have to keep in mind as you read through the study, it's not that we were coming up with a study set and sending that amongst the different laboratories. We really were doing this more like we would do our own internal validation for this particular breakpoint change. And so there were five different clinical testing sites in which we gathered our own, and we looked at all three of the major automated AST systems. So overall, it was about 284 isolates. Um, and some systems, just as it, as it happened, had more isolates than others. And so some of the sites maybe had limitations in terms of gathering those isolates. So you'll see through the study that it wasn't necessarily um, paired to have the same number of isolates with each particular testing system. But they ultimately all did have those isolates tested in-house and then sent to the same laboratory for broth microdilution. Okay. And definitely, you know, like, so like the article mentions, you know, so definitely it's a uh, micro scan. So the results from the, from the labs that send their isolates. So they were tested by automated uh, systems, you know, like the Phoenix, the Vitec 2 micro scan. Yeah. And I probably should have stated that. So yeah. So micro scan Phoenix and Vitec 2, and really we utilize our systems. We do our own internal QC. We follow our own SOPs. Um, just like any clinical laboratory would, um, and allowed the uh, system to call those MICs as it would and interpret those. So really there wasn't a manual interpretation done or overreading of the panels. We relied on our systems as they are um, used in the clinical laboratory. Um, so, you know, so the testing is done. So let's talk about the results. So overall, how did the instruments perform and how did they compare to the reference method? So I think one thing to comment on before we dive into the commercial systems is that Piptazo is a tough drug to test. It's a really, it's probably the most difficult drug we test. And this is for a couple of reasons. Um, one reason is you have piperacillin, which is essentially just a penicillin, and, and you're requiring Tazobactam to protect that penicillin against all these different enzymes that these bugs can make. So the inoculum, really can have a big impact on where your results might shift a little bit. Um, and so one of the caveats of our trial design is we weren't testing the exact same inoculum by the reference method as we did by the automated systems, which is what you would do in a clinical lab, right? You're not gonna have that reference method sitting at your side when you're trying to do your validation. So it was a little bit pragmatic, very real world. Um, the other thing I'd say before we dive into the commercial systems is we did a study uh, prior to this one where we compared broth microdilution to itself. And so we got a, two different brands of piperacillin powder, two different brands of tazobactam powder, two different brands of Mueller-Hinton broth, and we mixed and matched those to come up with six different formulations of broth microdilution. And broth microdilution against itself also did not meet what you would hope to see for a commercial method. And so even when you compare the reference to itself, 
again, because Piptasia was such a hard drug to test, there were minor errors. There were actually quite a few minor errors and the categorical agreement was less than what you would hope to see. So putting that in context, right? If we look at the commercial systems, um, they, they overall did not hit, you know, like that 90% categorical or essential agreement that M52 says that you should have, um, which is that CLSI document that talks about verification studies, nor what the FDA would require if this was like a clinical trial data set that was being submitted to the FDA. Um, and so there were some like nuances in the types of errors that we saw. Um, and so I don't know, April, if you want to kind of go over some of that. Sure. Yeah, I can hit a few of these. So I think, you know, to talk first about, um, you know, as Romney pointed out here, you know, it really wasn't set up to do a head to head comparison. So you can't really interpret, you know, was one instrument performance maybe better than another or, they weren't using the same isolate. So it really wasn't set up that particular way. So, you know, whenever we look at, as an example, the Phoenix here as a whole, the essential agreement was about 83%. So as Romney pointed out, that's a little short of that 90% that we would like to see. Um, and overall, it um, had a categorical agreement of about 84%. It had um, a very major error calling something susceptible. So again, remember a very major error is one where whenever you're doing your testing, you see that it tests susceptible, but your reference method is calling that resistance. So we consider a very major error to be one that you wanna try to avoid because that could lead to treatment of the patient with that drug when it probably is not truly susceptible. And so, you know, we really shoot for, you know, less than 1% or 1% of those types of errors. So when we had these low numbers of isolates that kind of were resistant in that category, then you can see that you're going to have maybe wild swings in terms of what you get for your very major error rates, as just as an example here. And that would be true again, like when you're doing this testing, this, this verification or validation testing in, in the laboratory. Um, and so, you know, we typically are going to want to keep those major errors pretty low. And so with this particular system, the major errors were pretty good, um, less than 2%. The minor errors were um, above that kind of 10% that we're looking for. But again, it, it wasn't terrible in terms of what we see. And as, as Romney pointed out, we still saw some errors, even with the broth microdilution against itself. So those are kind of to be potentially expected with Piptazo. So I don't know, Romney, if you want to hit the next one here. Sure. Yeah. So um, the other system we looked at was Microscan. Um, we saw a couple more struggles. So I'd say the essential and categorical agreement were very, very similar um, compared to what we saw on the BD Phoenix. And so 83.6% essential agreement and 80% by the steel aside breakpoints categorical agreement. The thing that I guess kind of stood out was that there were 36% very major errors by the microscan system. Now there's some caveats to this, right? There were only 11 resistant isolates and all four of the very major errors um, were from a single site. And so, um, you know, it's possible there were some testing discrepancies. We did go back and have like essentially repeat the experiment with that site. Um, and the very major errors stood, um, but three of them were for the same E. coli, well, were for E. coli. And so it's possible that that's just one 
weirdo strain of E. coli that this one particular site has. And this is something I think maybe to really highlight when you're doing your validation studies is when you see those trends, it's really good to check into a couple of things. So the first thing um, I would always suggest people do is check to see, are there limitations for the test system that you have that that the FDA imposed. So it was like a known issue. This happens all the time. Um, usually it's not for E. coli. And in this case, you know, Microscan does not have a limitation for E. coli. So we kind of ruled that out, but it's a really good thing to kind of keep in mind because you can't expect your validation to perform better than the FDA clinical trial is just, you know, not going to happen. Um, so that was the one thing. And then the other thing is, you know, if it's all the same species, you might start asking yourself, did I just have really bad luck when I picked my isolates and I picked the one clone that is going to misbehave in the system? So we haven't sequenced these isolates. And so I think that's kind of an outstanding question with this. Um, that being said, the ma major error rates were 4.8, which I think was pretty okay. And minor errors were um, pretty low below that 10% threshold at nine. Um, so, you know, maybe slightly less than you would want. If this was my lab, I would keep working on this to just say, okay, let's see if we can resolve some of these discrepancies. And then when we look at the Vitec, it performed really well. So 96% essential agreement, 95% categorical agreement. And similarly to Phoenix, it had one isolate in which there was a very major error. Um, so again, that put this, because there were such small numbers in terms of your resistant isolates, it put that at above, you know, that percentage we'd like to see. So, um, you know, you kind of have to take that for what it is, right? So we would want to include more resistant isolates at that point. Um, and no major errors and only two minor errors. So again, compared to the broth microdilution, um, the Vitex system, it, it looked like it was performing really well in, in the hands of the lab that was performing the study. I like hearing that. I mean, definitely that's the one that I, that I work with. So it's good hearing that it did. It did well. So, you know, with this question, you know, definitely sometimes, you know, a lot of, of, of medical lab scientists, you know, they might not be aware of this, you know, we're familiar with the CLSI, uh, but then you see, you know, FDA breakpoints, you know, CLSI breakpoints, and some people might be completely, you know, unaware about the, you know, the breakpoints that the instruments have. And so, so how do the results compare, you know, from your CLSI to the FDA? And also, you know, while we're, while we're at that, you know, why do both institutions, you know, have different breakpoints and how does, how does it, and how does it affect the automated instruments? Yeah. So maybe I can talk a bit about the mess that is breakpoints in the U S <laughs> um, cause it is kind of messy. So um, the CLSI is a standard setting organization. So we don't have any regulatory authority. Uh, we just, uh, based on the best available data through a consensus process, um, establish clinical breakpoints. The FDA, on the other hand, does have regulatory authority and where they have regulatory authority is over the drug manufacturers as well as the device manufacturers. And so there's actually two different branches of the FDA that play those roles. So one is CEDAR, which is the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research. And so they have the drug side of it. And then there's CDRH, which is the Center for Devices and Radiological Health, which has the devices. And so by US law, um, devices like your Vitec, like your Microscan, like your Phoenix, they have to follow breakpoints 
that are recognized by CEDAR. Um, so that's the drug branch. And so they publish these on a website. And um, typically those are breakpoints that are proposed to the FDA through the process of getting that drug approved um, for clinical use, for human use. Um, there is a process that CLSI can use to pitch their breakpoints to the FDA. And we did do this for Piperacil and Tazobactam. Um, and so the FDA, for the most part, recognized the CLSI breakpoints this January. So it takes them a little bit, you know, they're delayed close to about a year. I mean, to be fair for the FDA, they've been dealing with this small pandemic issue on the side. So they've got a lot of stuff on their plate. Um, but they did um, review the CLSI breakpoints. And for the most part, they did accept them for the enterobacterialis with one small exception, which is that um, FDA doesn't really believe in SDD. They use intermediate. And so, but the, the, the numerical values are the same. So I don't think we need to fuss too much about that. And so now that FDA has recognized those CLSI Piptazo breakpoints, the commercial systems can go back to the CDRH, the other branch of FDA with their data to say, hey, our device works. And I know that all of these companies are working on that very hard, but you can imagine it's a lot of work. They sometimes have to redo a new clinical trial and sometimes they have to redo um, some of their development if it's not quite formulated quite right. Um, and so typically we see it can take anywhere from like two to three years all the way up to 10 plus years for them to do this. And this is kind of one of the unfortunate things that we're faced with right now in the United States is some of our test systems um, we're kind of woefully behind in getting their breakpoints updated through the FDA, even when CLSI and FDA matched. Um, things are getting a lot better, but we did kind of go through this rough period, I'd say, over the last 10 years where there was a lot of disconnects. So I guess the, the take-home message I would say to labs is just because your device is FDA cleared does not mean that it's FDA cleared with the most current contemporary breakpoints. You really need to check with the manufacturer to see where what breakpoints are being applied. And for those labs that are CAP accredited, that is now a CAP accreditation requirement. Yeah, and to kind of piggyback on that, I would say this is probably a question. So Romney and I have been giving, you know, workshops and done and we've done different things and talks about susceptibility testing. And this is probably, you know, in my own experience as I, you know, talk to people about susceptibility testing that most people in the laboratory just aren't aware that that's the case, right? So you get this, you know, M100, you get your update, you look at that. And um, it's just sort of common that you would assume that the manufacturer, the device manufacturers, they come in and they update their software, that they're going to update your software to be the most recent or most updated breakpoints. And so it's just simply not the case in, in some of these scenarios. And so really that's something that in order to meet that cap requirement or to do best practices within your laboratory, one of the things that's really recommended is that you kind of make a table for yourself or you figure out what breakpoints you're actually using in your device. And you compare that with where CLSI sets or, you know, go and meet with your stewardship partners or your pharmacist, your ID physicians and have a discussion, you know, what, what really should we be doing in this particular scenario? And then try to determine, is this something that we can update on our own? Is it something that maybe we think, you know, if we speak with our device manufacturer, they're going to update within the next six months with that, you know, that's coming out. Is there any assistance that we can get from our vendor to help us with that? I know some of these commercial AST systems, they're really looking at how they can help the customers because they recognize not every laboratory is necessarily going to be able to do this on their own. And so, 
you know, they're really trying to figure out how to navigate the system as well, because they have this FDA process that they need to go through, but yet they're kind of stuck in the middle because they want to support their customers. So I think that's another piece of this, where if you're trying to figure out where to get started, that would be the advice that I give is, is just really investigate what, what breakpoints your system's using um, with your software, and then look at where you want to be. What are the differences that are current in terms of CLSI and have that conversation, that multidisciplinary conversation to figure out where you want to be in terms of some of these changes. Yeah, you know, and definitely I have seen out there, you know, a lot of publications that now they're even, you know, telling you, kind of giving you the steps of what to do, because, you know, it can definitely be challenging, especially uh, where do I start? You know, what do I do? So a lot of, you know, sometimes, you know, some labs, even, you know, they don't have, you know, like a, you know, a, a director on site or things like that. So whoever is, you know, sub in charge of micro might not be too familiar with, with what to do. So it's really good that all this information is, you know, is being brought out there. And there will be, uh, just to give a pitch for it, there will be a breakpoint implementation tool that is going to be available from the CLSI uh, probably in the next month or two. Um, and so that will have spreadsheets and how-tos and SOPs and all sorts of fabulous stuff to really help labs with this. Cause we, we everybody struggles with it. So we, we, you know, we get it. I struggle with it. <laughs> That's wonderful. So I will definitely be on the, on the lookout for that. And so I can share it with the audience. Um, so, you know, with the study, what's, what's, you know, what worked well, you know, what didn't. And, you know, and then you mentioned, you know, the very major errors. So maybe what do you think would be some of those possible causes? Yeah. So I, I think going in, we, we sort of knew that the performance would be imperfect. Um, we, we hoped that it would be really, really great and it'd be like no big deal and labs just update your breakpoints. Um, but that's obviously not what we found. Um, we did take a look at sort of the cost of doing nothing, right? So we, in our system, in our paper, we looked at CLSI breakpoints versus CLSI on the systems. We looked at FDA breakpoints versus FDA on the system, but then we looked at CLSI versus FDA. And, um, that kind of painted, I think, the most important story of this whole thing. So if labs do nothing, um, looking across the systems, your very major error rate is between 6% and 45%. So that means just, you know, sitting here today, based on everything that we know about Piperacil and Tazobactam, about how it's dosed, about the types of bugs we see today, um, if you don't make the breakpoint update, even though the systems didn't perform quite as well as we would have hoped, it's way worse if you do nothing. <laughs> and so I think that was kind of like, at least for me, one of the most important points when we looked at this, because keep in mind, if you have an isolate with an MIC of 32, um, you know, today that would be considered resistant. Yesterday that was intermediate. And what we know from the Reno trial is that result is associated with mortality for your patient if you treat them with Piptazo. So I do think despite how challenging this can be, labs really do need to make those updates. Um, April, I don't know if you want to comment at all about the very major error reasons. Yeah, I mean, I think when you go into something like this, obviously it's less than ideal to have one site that looks like an outlier, right? So, you know, that can be problematic. And 
And so whenever you're, you know, let's, let's say this is my site. So let's say that this happens, you know, one of the things that I go into that looking um, at if I was doing this validation in house is some of the points that Romney hit on earlier, you know, is this something to do with the particular isolates that I selected? So did I pick the right mix of bugs to begin with? And so often whenever we're doing these types of studies in our own institutions, we see that we don't want to necessarily overtax the system, right? So we don't want to pick all isolates that are right around the breakpoint. We want to have a really healthy spread of isolates. So ones that you would reasonably think the system would be able to um, call susceptible and intermediate or susceptible dose dependent or resistant. So you really want to have a spread. Um, and we try to do that, um, honestly, in the study here. So that's one caveat again to this where, you know, you just may find yourself having a situation where you stumble upon a problem like this. And so when we've had in the past where we have set our criteria going into the, the validation or the verification, and we see that we're not meeting it. So either you can establish yourself potentially, you know, a limitation as, as Romney pointed out, or we say, hey, we're not really able to do that. But in this particular instance, E. coli versus Piptazo, we would have to report that, right? We would have to figure out a way to work through that. So one of the things that we would wanna look at is, you know, is this a site issue? Do we have something that's going on at our particular site, you know, where we're not setting these up properly? So we would assess our QC, we would look at other isolates, we would do some reproducibility. Because in the clinical laboratory, unlike, you know, in the research land, we don't do replicate testing, right? So you kind of get one bite at the apple whenever you're doing susceptibility testing on clinical isolates. So you have to be really sure that your system's performing in a way that you would expect it to. So again, we would kind of look at that and say, you know, is it something to do with our system itself? So should we really thoroughly investigate our system? Is there something going on with either our panels or our instrument or our testing personnel um, to really look and see if that was potentially the issue? And so if you're able to kind of reasonably rule those things out, then I think you have to go down the path of, you know, is there something inherently different about this particular isolate or the, the set of isolates? And so just at our site, you know, one of the things that we do see sometimes is that you have heterogeneity amongst, you know, our, our E. coli isolates. So we do a lot of urine testing, I'll just say. Uh, we have a big healthy dose of outpatient clinics and outpatient testing sites or collection sites. So we do a lot of urine testing. And one of the questions that comes up pretty frequently is when we see that there's clonal variation amongst, you know, E. coli or, you know, an Enterobacter or a Pseudomonas aeruginosa, do we set up susceptibility on each one of those? You know, when do we know whether to set it up, whether not to set it up, whether this is one thing, whether this is two things? So I think, you know, it's perfectly reasonable to anticipate that maybe if you encounter some of these clinical isolates, um, you may have this phenomenon happen, right? And so if you're a laboratory that does disk diffusion testing, sometimes you can see inner colonies and you can pick those out. But when you're looking at, you know, a broth plate, you're unlikely to be able to see that in the same way that you could with the distiffusion. So I think, you know, it's definitely possible that, you know, it's an isolate issue. Um, as Romney pointed out, whenever you have these resistance mechanisms, um, uh, specifically ones that attack the, the beta lactams, you can have like an ESBL plus an AMPC. These are already set near, um, for some of these isolates near the, what would be considered susceptible for the wild type versus maybe inching over that MIC and now be in the resistance category. So really we have to kind of think about how to interrogate that question. So that's kind of going to be next steps, I would think for some of the laboratories that are interested in this to really look at, you know, how do we 
better understand whether this is something to do with a phenomenon that we would see that may be reproducible somewhere else or outside this particular scenario. Yeah, you know, um, so definitely, you know, my my next question, I you definitely touched on it and, and gave a, a great deal of information. So, you know, I was going to ask about recommendations regarding the breakpoints, and you already talked about that. And, you know, you also mentioned there's a tool coming and things, you know, we can do. Is there anything else that you uh, want to add about that? Or Well, I would just say for labs that are CAP accredited, it's 2023 and FDA recognized the CLSI breakpoint for the most part. And so that means you have 2023, 2024, 2025. By 2026, you have to make the update per CAP regulation. They give you three years. So I, like I mentioned earlier, I know all of the commercial manufacturers are working on this. Um, and it is, I truly believe, the better thing for patient care for us to do. I know breakpoints kind of feel a little esoteric sometimes to some of us, but um, data after data show that it really does make a huge difference on patient outcomes if you're using the most up-to-date clinical interpretations. Yeah, and, and you know, that caught my eye as I was reading the, the article because there's a section where it says, you know, when the, you know, you compare when the FDA breakpoints and then the CLSI breakpoints, some of the interpretations, you know, change, right? And then the article says that the sum would have been reported one way yeah, based on those changes. So. Yeah, for sure. Especially for Piptazo, right? Because so many bugs live around where the breakpoints are. Makes it trickier, um, but even more important, right? And I think it's, you know, you talk about, as an example, carbapenem resistance. Most places that are, you know, lucky, you know, you're not seeing 10%, 20%. Um, CRE in your lab, but you are seeing that kind of resistance rates with these new breakpoints for Piptazo. And so, you know, if you're not making the updates, that's a pretty big bucket of patients that you might be misdiagnosing. Yeah. And I think the other thing I would add to that is, you know, this is, we didn't set this up to look at consecutive isolates, right? So if you wanted to really interrogate this for your own laboratory, you could pull out your antibiogram data. So our particular instrument allows you to get um, a distribution like an MIC distribution. So then you can go back and look and say how many isolates or what percentage of isolates may fall in this category where I would be potentially um, not calling something resistant when it is. And so that would give you the ability to kind of in your own institution, be able to make that decision as to whether or not this would be um, a problem for your particular location. But, you know, to the statements earlier, I think, you know, this is the crowd here that um, we're proponents of uh, updating your breakpoints and, and really staying standard um, with what CLSI is putting out there, because those are really based on real world situations where we see patients are failing, we see that there's an issue. And so CLSI has really sought to try to correct and, and help laboratories um, solve some of those problems. And so we are, I don't want to speak for Romney, but I'm sure she feels this way, you know, big proponents of really looking at how to get current with your susceptibility testing systems. Absolutely. Okay. Is there anything else you want to add? No, other than to say, I think it was sort of a good case study and how tricky it can be to do these validations, right? And, and I think the other thing I would say is, 
as I mentioned, I know a lot of these companies are working on updating the breakpoints through FDA. They're going to have much bigger data sets, right? Like thousands of isolates, hundreds of isolates that they evaluate for that. And so I think the proof will be in that pudding, not this pudding so much, but this is more like a, a snapshot of what you're going to expect if you do this validation um, in your own lab. Okay, well, you know, definitely this has been, you know, so informative. That's been great and you know, definitely a pleasure having you both here. So thank you so much for taking the time to coming into Let's Talk Micro. Hey, it was our pleasure. It was fun. Yep, thanks so much. My pleasure. And that, my dear audience, it's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoy learning about TCP and this study they did with, you know, comparing the breakpoints and how the, the drug performed with automated instruments against a reference method. As always, I enjoy talking to you and bringing this information to you. Thank you for your support. Definitely, you know, I appreciate it. Please continue downloading episodes and sharing the podcast. Thank you. And stay tuned. Great things are coming your way. As always, continue bringing that passion to what you do. That's very important. We have such a great work. We do such great work. As always, stay motivated. Stay safe. And of course, continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.